Information and opinions presented in this Arc Energy Ideas podcast are provided for informational purposes only and are subject to the disclaimer link in the show notes. This is the Arc Energy Ideas podcast with Peter Tertzakian and Jackie Forrest, exploring trends that influence the energy business. Welcome to the Arc Energy Ideas podcast. I'm Jackie Forrest. And I'm Peter Tertzakian. Welcome back. Well, it's uh, another one of these head-turning weeks in terms of trying to keep up with all the announcements as it relates to net zero, oil and gas, decarbonization, you name it, right? Yeah, and that's the topic of this podcast. So okay, we'll talk about some of the more recent news this week, mm. but also wanted to really dive into this new IEA net zero 2050 report. So we'll spend most of the time on that. But first, just can't keep up with it. You had Exxon, the small hedge fund, won a plan to replace some of the board seats. Mm-hmm. Chevron had an investor vote that said they have to care about Scope 3. They didn't really right. want to care. And Scope 3 is the emissions associated with people using their products. Shell, this one's interesting. Activists won in a Dutch court. The Dutch court is saying that Shell must reduce mm-hmm. its emissions, not just within Holland, but globally, by 45% by 2030. And that includes their Scope 3 emissions. So, right. you know, the emissions associated with their products. And although they had a goal, it was well short of that. And it's kind of interesting. The court said that even though Shell was not part of the deal that the Netherlands has signed around the Paris Agreement, they are bound by uh, that national type of a pledge. Yeah. So they're saying that this could create, well, first of all, Shell is going to appeal this. So where do you want to start? I mean, like each one of these subjects is an hour-long podcast. So you want to talk about the uh, multinational oil company actions or the IA report, or where do you want to go with it? Well, let's just say that there's a lot of pressure on the oil and gas companies. Yeah. I think we should spend most of the time on the IA report, okay. and I don't think that's going to change in terms of the pressure they're under yeah. to reduce their emissions and probably not invest as much in oil and gas. I mean, I think right. that's the pressure that's on them. I did want to do a shout out to Suncor, too. Mm. Did you catch yeah, that Yeah, the Net Zero announcement, that's another one. Yeah, so Suncor has said in the last few days that they want to become a net zero company by 2050. They are going to reduce GHG in their base business, so continue to have Mm -hmm. oil and gas, but have it lower carbon, but also invest in hydrogen, electricity, and renewables. So I updated my little calculation. Mm. So now half of the Western Canadian oil production is backed by a net zero target. So that's pretty incredible, right? Like not your old oil sands industry that no, people think of. No, And how much of that, what is a percentage basis when you just look at the oil sands companies by themselves? Like the oil sands that's sub, a good question. subsector. It's, it's much higher than I that. I think it would be a, a vast majority at because this Because the point. bulk of the emissions come out of the oil sands. So it's really significant. Yeah, yeah. No, I've just looked at that in terms of the production. Yeah. So, yeah, in terms of total emissions, I think you're right. That's maybe hold on for another podcast, people. I will do that calculation. And then, of course, the best news of the week is that we're going to be able to go to a beer tent at Stampede. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And uh, no emissions there. So, in July, we may be out of the soup, the pandemic soup, by the end of June, we're hearing. We shall see. So, stay tuned for that. But I want to get back to this Dutch court. I don't know anything about Dutch law, so can you explain what the relevance this is from a global perspective? Well, I'm not going to profess to be any lawyer here, but I did read three articles on the topic, okay. so that's as <laughs> much as I know. But it seems that because the Netherlands has signed up to the Paris Agreement, even though Shell was not part of that deal, they do are obligated to uh, mm-hmm. meet that national pledge. And we're going to talk a bit later about the net zero scenarios. They require a very quick change in our emissions much faster than what Shell was planning. And so this judgment is saying that 
the company has the burden to reduce their emissions. And, mm-hmm. and it could be pretty impactful. I mean, there's going to be appeals, I'm sure, because almost all companies are in jurisdictions where there's been some sort of national pledge at this point. In fact, one of the things that came out of the IEA net zero is something like 70% of the world's emissions are backed by net zero 2050 pledges now. So there's a lot of emissions in the world that are in countries with these types of pledges. And you know you could just see a whole range of lawsuits against industrial emitters right. around the world. But if, the, if this you know, they're, they're not necessarily in countries that are big oil producers. You look at these announcements as they relate to Shell, ExxonMobil, and uh, what's the other one? Uh, Chevron. Chevron, right. Okay, I mean, if you add up their total production, you'd be hard-pressed to get to 6% of world oil production. And I think an important thing, if the demand doesn't go down, I mean, I I think Shell could easily reduce their emissions by 45% by 2030. They're going to sell some assets, you know, produce a lot less oil and gas. But someone's going to buy those assets Mm -hmm. because someone's still going to demand oil and gas. So Mm -hmm. is it really going to change how many emissions ultimately the world has? No, it's just going to shift the ownership to companies that aren't under these sorts of pressures, maybe more private and nationally owned companies. Mm -hmm. Well, there's no question. These things have huge bearing on the free market independent oil companies. But those companies are dominantly domiciled in the United States, Canada, and Europe, especially the European countries that border the North Sea, including the Netherlands. So these countries are the ones that are being encumbered. Meanwhile, the rest of the national oil companies around the world are not. Ultimately, it means you're going to see not much supply growth from these types of producers and more from the other Oh, they've already the stated they're not going to grow. Yeah. yeah. And that gets to the IEA report, actually. Yeah. We'll talk about some of the results, but it is assuming that OPEC takes a more market share over time and that even though everyone's going to decline in their oil production, that OPEC is going to fare better. And it makes sense because they may have the ability to grow while others are in decline. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's talk about the report. First of all, I want to give some background on the report. It was kind of overdue. There was a lot of criticism of the IEA because they kept using their IEA sustainable development scenario, which was put out after the Paris Agreement in 2015. And it was the goalpost then. The goalpost then was less than two degrees of warming, and it was a net zero 2070. Although really wasn't expressed like that very often. It was a net zero 2070. But as you know, there's been a big narrative shift since then. Everyone wants to get to net zero 2050, and the IEA was quite slow to put out a scenario that would describe what that world would look like. And what we learned last week when it came out is it's drastically different than the sustainable development scenario in terms of its drop of both gas and oil use. Yeah. I think it's it's important to just back up for a minute and talk about the International Energy Agency. The International Energy Agency was set up after the oil price shocks of the 70s, really as an organization to tackle energy security. It was the groups of countries, largely Western countries. I don't know, there's about 30 of them, including the United States, Canada, a lot of European countries. The intent was to ensure that those countries had a safe and secure and reliable source of oil, a lot of encouragement to actually explore, develop, and produce their own oil. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, storage. And Incre- storage. Increase your own storage uh, within your country. Yeah, the whole idea of the, uh, the strategic petroleum reserves came out of that. And so now, you know, the International Energy Agency is basically saying complete about face. We've got to stop producing oil and move forward. And that's fine. But I think that it's really important to understand that geopolitical context. Now, I want to say, though, I, I don't think this report is saying 
necessarily that we need to stop producing oil. It's saying if you want to achieve yes. net zero 2050, yes. these are the things that would have to yeah. happen. Yeah. Uh, and it would mean that oil would have to drop off fairly quickly and we yes. wouldn't need to develop as much oil. But let's talk, we can talk about that comment. I think that's the biggest headline that came out of this report yes. is the comment that we don't need to invest in any more new oil. Yeah, if I may, it's really important to amplify what you just said, Jackie, and that is that the report came out and says, if you want to achieve net zero, here is a relatively narrow scenario, pathway, whatever you want to call it, to get to it by 2050. Mm -hmm. And I quite like the report. You know why? Because it demonstrates how severe the policy has to be to achieve something in such a short period of time. I mean, 30 years when it comes to energy transition is a very short period of time. So it provides, in my mind, kind of a bookend. Okay, uh, on one side of the bookend is do nothing. We know that's not acceptable. On the other side of the bookend is, okay, here's the extreme scenario of what you got to do. And I think it forces us to think, well, if we're going to get to net zero, we got to start thinking out of the box because a lot of the stuff that is in that report Already, many member countries in the IAEA have come forth and said, sorry, uh, we're not doing that. Yeah, no, that's interesting. We'll talk about the reaction later, yeah. but not everyone's on board with the report. You know, I do think it's really a tool for this UN Climate Change Conference coming up. Mm -hmm. It has 400 milestones that would need to be achieved and something for policymakers to think about, like you yeah. must ban combustion engines by 2035. Mm -hmm. You must not allow new investment in oil and gas. You must do things to change behavior, which is actually one of the biggest right. areas that is going to affect oil and gas demand within the decade because we can't necessarily change our infrastructure all we can do is change our behavior, and, and that's right. going to be tough to do. So I think it's really trying to say to policymakers, this is what you would have to do if you're going to make pledges like this. And hopefully it informs the discussion you know, leading up to and at this uh, big COP26 meeting. Okay. So which side do you want to start on, the supply side or the demand side as it relates to oil? Well, let's talk about the no new oil and gas fields are needed mm -hmm. for a zero pathway. I think the important thing is we will talk quickly about demand is this assumes that electric cars really take off and therefore we don't need as much oil. So just to give you some context in terms of where oil demand gets to, it goes from 90 million barrels a day in 2020. We know that it's probably going to be higher than that in 2021. And it would go down to 25 million barrels a day by 2050. So that's a huge drop, way different than the sustainable development scenario. And on the gas side, it would be cut in half over that same time mm -hmm. period, where the sustainable development scenario was more like gas would stay equal to today. So that's the trajectory. So in that context, you don't need too much new oil development, although you do need some, and that was in the report. Right. So let's explore the language in the report. And so I'm just sort of going to paraphrase it. What the report said, and I think this was misinterpreted by a lot of headlines, the report basically said, look, we have found enough oil fields in the world over the course of the last 150 years, we don't need to find any more oil fields. In other words, we do not need to be spending more money on exploring for new offshore or onshore oil fields. However, if you stop spending on oil drilling altogether, the oil fields will decline at 8% per year. Mm -hmm. But we know that demand can't fall that fast. So we do need to do development drilling on existing oil fields. So there still has to be investment. Some news feeds and stories talked about that, but this interpretation was not well qualified that 
we should not be investing money in new oil fields. Now, for Canada, that's really interesting because we stopped exploration drilling certainly over the last five years. We have done pretty much majority development drilling. And in 2020, it was almost 100% development drilling and no exploration. Mm-hmm. In other words, Canada and Western Canada was one of the first in the world to commercialize oil and gas development. The early years, the early decades were all about exploration and finding fields like Leduc and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. The last big oil field in Canada that was probably found was Hibernia in Newfoundland, Labrador. Mm-hmm. Well, commercializing the oil sands, you know, is, is and then really the oil a big, sands. But big you know, thing. the oil sands were discovered actually back uh, with the fur traders, to be honest with you, and go back to the 1960s. On the conventional side, what I'm basically saying is that actually Canada's compliant with this report. We're, we're compliant. not developing new we're, oil fields. We're not developing any new oil right. fields. We, we've found them all. We know where there is. We're just doing development. You can see it in either the investment numbers on a dollar basis or on the drilling numbers. And on the oil sands, post-2014-15 oil price drop, we saw the cancellation of 17 oil sands projects. I think, what was it, at Fort Hills, and what's the other one? Well, Fort Hills is built. Yeah, I know, but over the course of the last five years, right? It was one of the last ones to be built. And all of the major oil sands companies have come out even recently saying, we're not building anymore. So everything here in Canada is basically under the definition of development investment and zero exploration. And I will just add, the the oil consumption decline annually is 4% per year. So if the average decline of existing fields is 8% per year... There is money to be spent because we need to offset half of that, right? Because the consumption is not dropping as fast as the oil fields are. And the IEA actually had in the report, this was not covered very well, is that they think that annual spending over the next decade needs to be about $500 billion per year on oil and gas fields. And that's actually similar to 2020. That's down from the seven mm-hmm. to $800 billion per year being spent prior to 2020, but that's still right. a lot of investment. And of course, some of that's well, going to happen here in Canada. Five hundred billion a year. Yeah, there's a lot of investment that's required to offset the declines, the eight percent declines. And Canada is one of them that is not exploring anymore. The United States is largely there, but there are other countries within the IEA group, Norway in particular, that's still licensing offshore parcels in uh, the northern part of the North Sea. So, to be honest, they're exploring. Uh, There are other countries in the world that are actively exploring for new oil fields. But uh, a lot of the Western world, what I call North America, I mean, that era is over. So we're compliant. And interestingly enough, Norway did come out with some comments. I think it was the energy minister talking about the fact that, well, why shouldn't we develop our oil and gas? Because we are going to be very low carbon. Wouldn't you Mm. rather have us supply the oil than some higher carbon sources supply? Uh, Sounds like a familiar argument. Familiar (laughs) argument, yeah. But uh, I don't know to what extent that washes. And upholding the Norwegian brand as one of the cleanest energy countries on earth is going to be increasingly difficult, is what I think, in light of this report. Yeah, and then some of the other pressure. Now, the difference is they are not a publicly traded company. They're no. owned by the government, so their dynamic is a little different than Shell and Exxon here. I think there's another important side of the equation that was not covered in the media very well, and that is the 4% that you mentioned, the 4% decline in oil starting consumption this year. starting this year. Yeah, it's really aggressive. I think it's really hard to see. It's coming from behavior change. I mean, that's what the lockdown did to us, right? Mm-hmm. We had to change our behaviors drastically because between now and 2030, you can definitely increase the amount of EVs you sell, but we have a lot of combustion mm-hmm. vehicles in the fleet. And a lot of these technologies are further off, but 
They talk about consumer choices really mattering, that half of the GHG reduction stem from consumer choices. So, for example, purchasing an EV, behavioral changes, don't take the car trip, you need to walk or cycle or use public transportation. Forgoing long-haul flights is 4% of all GHG reductions in the scenario. So don't go on that overseas trip, mm-hmm. vacation in your backyard, preferably with an EV that isn't using <laughs> oil. Less air travel. They ha- basically assume that air travel stays at 2019 levels, both for leisure yeah. and business, and we don't see growth. Even though the economy is going to grow, there's going to be more people over the next 30 years, we don't see any growth in the amount of air travel that we do. Things like awareness campaigns, for instance, in the summer, you may only have your house be cooled down to 25 degrees Celsius, you know, instead of 20. Mm-hmm. And that can save a ton of energy if everybody does it. But I think you're going to need some policy to get people in the West doing that sort well, of thing. Well, I, I think too much stick policy and not enough carrot is just not going to work. And I think these are pretty draconian. Emphasize again, this is the bookend. This is yeah. what the IAA is saying. If you want to get to net zero by 2050, these are some of the things that have to happen and it outlines really the, as you said, the social side is 50, 55% of it, yeah. the behavioral side, and how, frankly, difficult that is. Now, you know, I think this decade up to 2030 is going to be very difficult to bend the curve, to be honest with you. But, you know, post-2030 technology and all sorts of other dynamics, I can see this happening. But to think that in over the course of the next eight years, we're going to reduce oil consumption by 4% per year compounding. I mean, I just don't see that happening. It, it is tough, right? I think they have EVs ramping up to something like 60% of, of new sales. car sales. New yeah. car sales. But you're right. There's still a lot in the fleet over the next 10 years that are not EVs. I think you're right in terms of the doability or likelihood. You know, the IA does come out with a five-year forecast of oil demand. So they have like a specific oil market report that came out mm-hmm. in the last month or so. And that's quite different. So this is sort of their base case. They assume that oil demand by 2026 gets to something like 104 million barrels a day. Yeah, so it's still going up. Yeah, so it's going up from 90 in 2020 up to 104. That seems the most likely path in terms of if people get back to what they were doing pre-COVID and the economy grows. And the lack of alternatives to oil mean that that's what's going to happen unless we see massive behavior changes. Well, I mean, look at real-time reality check. U.S. gasoline demand, and we're not even into the thick of summer driving season, is already at a five-year high. Yes, it's, yeah. it's higher it's than touching it was on the pre- five-year high, higher than pre-pandemic, yeah. and we're not even at a full immobility yet. I mean, we're in seeing the travelers in the U.S. really start to increase in terms of the air travel. Yeah, so people are pretty excited now that COVID's over to get back to moving around mm-hmm. and mobility. So, what has been the response of different countries? Well, there's a f- few different groups I looked at. One is the industry and governments that depend on fossil fuels. There's Mm -hmm. definitely, I would say, a lot of negative quotes around that. So, for example, their perception is that all these technologies are off the shelf. That's the efficiency people. World Nuclear Association isn't happy. Highly impractical. There wasn't really very much nuclear Mm -hmm. used in this scenario. And that is the one thing with these scenarios, right? They assume certain technologies, like in this case, they used uh, renewables, really growing for electricity and they didn't rely on nuclear or or as much coal backed by CCS as, right. as people would have liked. So the Coal Association called it unrealistic as well. The International Gas Association said it would present a serious risk to energy security. You know, for them, that's a drastic change from the sustainable development scenario, which was like that gas was going to stay equal between now and, and 2040. Now it falls precipitously. Yeah, yeah, now there's a big fall. Japan and Australia dispute the findings. They want to continue 
fossil fuel investment, despite this advice. So Australia sees a bigger role for coal in the future than what the IEA put there. Norway, as I said before, has expressed that they want to keep producing their low-carbon oil and gas. And uh, Japan as well is worried about energy security. And the Alberta government also wasn't very favorable about the report. So again, I think that there's a sort of an almost immediate knee-jerk sensitivity to this report because sort of interpreted as uh, this is what you should do. I think really the report is again saying if you want to get to net zero, this is what has to happen according to this scenario. Yes. There are yeah. other scenarios. And, you know, there are interesting dynamics. I mean, it's a 200-plus page report that we've read through. I mean, there are some positive things in this thing. There certainly are. Hey, I wanted to do one more thing about reactions from the environmental groups. You'd think that they would love this report, but actually they were complaining too. They didn't like the reliance on uh, carbon capture and storage. They didn't like the fact that there was any oil in it or that there were Mm bioenergy in it. So anyway, you can't make anyone happy with (laughs) these types of reports. Well, when you get to these extremities, it's really hard to make anybody happy. But I know who's happy, the people that want to invest in clean energy, because (laughs) uh, there's some pretty optimistic profiles in terms of the amount of growth that we're going to see in clean energy in this report. And by the way, a lot of the IEA reports are not public, but this one is. We'll put a link to it in the show notes, but you can actually get the whole report. A lot of their other ones you have to subscribe to. So let's talk about some of the new energy investment required. Clean energy investment goes from $1 trillion per year now, or the past five-year average, to $4 trillion a year. So That's obviously going to be a huge amount of growth Mm. over this time period. And there's going to be, solar is going to be a real winner here. It becomes one-fifth of all of the world's energy supplies. Half of all the energy comes from electricity. So they really went with the electrification and a lot of it coming from renewables. And this is, I think, where different groups take issue with the report because I'm sure, why does it not come from nuclear, for instance, if you're the Nuclear Association? Or why doesn't it come from more fossil fuel backed Mm -hmm. up by CCS. So everyone, there's lots of different ways to get here, but they chose a lot coming for the electricity from solar and wind and and batteries. Well, I can certainly, I don't know if we're going to get to four times the spending level, and we're going to talk more about solar in coming podcasts, but you can make money from solar. Money can be made, Mm -hmm. and increasingly so. I can buy into that. You know, where we have to start wondering and thinking about is where can money be made and all these other segments that the IEA outlines that need to happen going forward. Right? Yeah, because and is the growth not, realistic? And is the growth realistic yeah. in the absence of investors and I'll call them operators and proponents of all the new infrastructure that's needed? Can they make money? Uh, yeah. If they can, this thing will move more quickly than we think. But if they can't, That's where the problems arise. Well, in the next 10 years, in order to achieve that 4% growth per year over the next 10 years, it is not just behavior. There is some major changes in what we buy. So EVs grow by eight times between Mm -hmm. now and 2030. Critical minerals grow seven times in the next 10 years. Solar annual growth rate is four times greater in 2030 than today. So just think of the pull on minerals. Yeah, uh, we talked about that. And and how long it takes to build Mm -hmm. a mine. So some of these growth rates are are very aggressive for sure. And and I have to say this again because I've said it many times on the podcasts. Emissions reduction and electric vehicles don't confuse the two because it's far more dependent upon how many internal combustion vehicles 
are retired out of the fleet. I mean, you can sell as many EVs as you want if people still use combustion engine vehicles. You know, you sell yours, and then some. Mm-hmm. Uh, whoever buys yours sells, and then it goes across to the other side of the world to developing country and continues to be driven for twenty years. Well, they did have the ride sharing and did talk about the fact that people are going to have a lot less cars. So they are considering well, the fleet getting smaller within that. But it's not headed in that direction right now. No. <laughs> and I know the pandemic is obscuring things, but people are taking more and more personal trips because of the pandemic, I admit. But it's not a foregone conclusion that people are going to make these behavioral changes. No, I think we're going to see in the second half of 2021 a fair amount of air travel, right? People are not going to be thinking about greenhouse gas emissions as much, potentially. Biofuels is going to grow not as much. They had biofuels growing, doubling to 2050 and meeting 20% of global energy needs. So anyway, biofuels was another one that grows not as aggressively as solar and EVs and some of those other ones. So anyway, there's a lot of opportunity in new energy. We Unfortunately, with these types of scenarios, you have to pick the specific technologies that they do. And and I think there's a lot of debate about, Mm -hmm. like, why wouldn't small nuclear be part of that future or more CCS? They did actually have a fair amount of CCS. CCS grows from 1.6 gigatons today, rising to 7.6 gigatons by 2050. And that's in the range, you know, by the time we get out to 2050 of 15% of today's emissions. Uh, But of course, it could be a lot bigger than that by some people's views. Anyway, it's one scenario. And it's trying to project where we're going to be 30 years from now. If I think 30 years back, 1990, 1991, we were still using dial-up 14.4 modems and mobile phones the size of a shoe. So, you know, like there's going to be a lot of change between now and then. I think that the next few years are going to be volatile in terms of the narratives and these sorts of reports coming out. But I think as technologies and more capital comes into the space and we figure out how money is going to be made in the different sectors from decarbonization, then you'll start to see the momentum. I think it'll start coming in the 2030s. Yeah. And I think also these types of reports are constrained by what we know about technology today. Hmm. And technology can change very quickly, as we know. We saw that with shale gas and shale oil in, in the last 10 years. So there could be breakthroughs here on the technology side that make this a lot easier. And maybe we don't need to get energy efficiency to provide 4% per year improvement in our use of energy because there may be cheaper, more abundant, low carbon energy that evolves over the next 30 years. So don't stress over the report. Yeah, (laughs) don't read the 220 pages as I did and get all stressed out. But there's opportunity there too. I mean, what I look at it from Canada's perspective is, hey, there's going to be oil and gas production for a while. And if we reduce our emissions, we have a better chance of being part of that than if we don't. That's definitely going to be valued in this world. But on the other side, as we've been talking a lot on the podcast, we've got lots of opportunities. I mean, the last number of podcasts we've had, we've got opportunities with uh, renewable energy, with biofuels, carbon capture. So there's opportunity for billions of dollars of investment in Canada in these types of scenarios. I I think it's not a well-understood dynamic that in many ways we're ahead of the curve on some of those things, including, as I said earlier, not spending any money on exploration. All right. Well, I think that wraps up our conversation for today. Yeah, great. All right. Thanks to our listeners. If you like this podcast, please rate us on the app that you listen to and tell someone else about us. For more ideas and insights, visit arcenergyinstitute.com.